the whirlwind. And, uh, but I'm thankful we got to be here for a whole day, a whole Sunday, and I'm glad we didn't get here last night. <laughs> and uh, we had a little time to fellowship and get to know Pastor Simpson and his family and, and to just be with you folks again. And thank you again for the place to stay. And oh my, talk about killing us with kindness. Uh, we went out to eat at this La Hacienda Escondido or something like that. And, and uh, the Kovaches and Brother Raymond sat there with us. And I said, Brother, when I sat there and I started eating that feast, I'm like, am I supposed to get up and talk and sing after this? <laughs> so we worked out a solution. So I'm going to ask Brother Raymond to come up now. And uh, he... He was impressing me because he was talking in Spanish to the waitress, you know. And I'm like, wow, you speak some Spanish? And he kind of went just enough to get in trouble. And I said, this is, and this is actually true, I said, people that, have, that speak Spanish and recognize that when you write, you know, you're using English letters, but the vowel sounds are Spanish. And if you know that, the, the letter A is always A, and the letter I is always E, then you could, if we wrote out a Japanese phrase or a sentence, you could actually read the Japanese and sound pretty good if you just think Spanish. So he agreed to a little experiment. And so at this point, I'm going to defer to my brother and you just take off from here. All right. He's the joker, not me. Okay. Watashi wa Ramon do desu ijo desu. Ijo, ijo desu. Ijo desu. He did that from memory. I did that just look at it and if you don't think he actually was reading it as he studied it, he can show you the paper after church. Yeah, it's there. So, uh, but that, I, I, the more I started talking to him about doing that, he looked at me like, you're not serious, are you? And I said, I'm totally serious. I want to do this. And he's like, okay. I said, good. I got a good sport here. We're going to have fun. But uh, how many of you would like to just, I'm going to teach you a song real fast in Japanese. All you have to learn is just a little tiny bit. How many of you know, hallelujah, praise you the Lord? Kids, you know, right? Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise you the Lord. Okay. The hallelujah part's pretty simple. It's just, ha-de-do, It's sort of like the Spanish R. It's not the er, you know, and it's not the L. So don't do this southern hallelujah stuff, okay? You're going to go to Japan. You can't do that no more. You've got to speak Japanese. And, uh, and words that you think they should understand, they won't understand if you don't say it with the correct pronunciation. And it's kind of funny. We laugh about it. But if we're trying to communicate the gospel... It is important that we learn to speak their language properly. So we've worked on it and uh, tried. I'll always have somewhat of an accent, and people can tell. They say it's understandable. It's, 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 you know, my burden as a preacher is that when I get up and preach God's word and preach the gospel, that nothing got lost in translation. You know? And uh, people say we understand it. It's, it's clear and it's understandable. And uh, our girls will speak it more naturally than we do. But anyway... The song, hallelujah, 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 and praise ye the Lord's a little different. Shu o ho me yo. You got that? Shu, like your shoe? Shu o. And if you want to think, hold the mayo. I mean, that's pretty lame, I know. But anyway, whatever works. But shu o ho me yo, and it literally means praise the Lord. So shu is Lord. And homeo is, let's praise the Lord. So, ha de shu homeo. So we'll just all do it together, okay? Here we go. ha de do ha de do ha de do ha de do ya shu o ho me o ha de do ha de do ha de do ha de do ya shu o ho me o shu o ho me o 
アレルヤ主を褒めよアレルヤ主を褒めよアレルヤ主を褒めよ And if Japanese people were here today, they would just love that. To hear you singing in their language, they would just be very, very、uh, touched by that. So, that was your Japanese lesson for today. We'll go on. But I want to just real quickly, I was sharing something with the folks as we sat at, at lunch together about culture and about going to a, a foreign field. It could be Japan, it could be anywhere in the world, it could be another part of the United States, right? There is a different culture in different parts of the country. Until we came down to Texas, I had spent my entire life in the Midwest. Uh, Illinois, Indiana, and then up to Minnesota, and that was kind of my whole existence. And then we started traveling on our first furlough, and we got down into Texas. And for the first time in my life, I heard somebody say, I'm going to carry my mom to the grocery store. <laughs> now, now, you know what's going through my, through my mind, right? You know, I hope you got a good back. But, you know, up there, we always say, Take. I'm going to take my mom. And,、uh, but down here, carry is used a little different way. And so that's just part of the culture. And you can fight it if you want to, but that's how people talk. And so you can just learn to live with it. And so going to Japan, we will always be Caucasians, just you know, white people, blue eyes, blonde hair, you know, and well, I don't have blonde hair, but anyway,、uh, we're different. We don't look Japanese, but we have to. And let me say this the gospel is non negotiable, and we have no right to change anything that this book teaches. And, and whether it be in Japan or whether it be in here in the United States, God's word always is above the culture. But I'll tell you what, culture is really strong, isn't it? And what we do, how we've always done it, tradition, tradition. But we had to go to Japan and learn that they have some traditions that there's nothing wrong with it. Now, some things are very idolatrous and we, don't, we won't do those things. Other things are just the way they do it. And like taking off your shoes when you come in the house. And ladies actually like that because it makes cleaning lots easier. But、uh, how you. Do just lots of different things. But so I'm going to give you a real quick culture quiz, just one, one problem. And I want to, this is something that there is a right way and a wrong way of doing something. And you want to do it the right way because it would be offensive or at the very least cause anxiety in a person if you don't do it the right way. So here's the question. And I'm going to just have a show of hands A and B. Okay, so here's the deal you, somebody that you know is in the hospital and you want to go visit them in the hospital. And you want to take them a, a gift of flowers. Now, you can either go to the flower shop and buy them a potted plant with blossoms, a living potted plant, or you can buy them a bouquet of cut flowers. Which of these two do you think is the proper gift for someone sick in the hospital? Okay, letter A will be the potted plant with blossoms. That's A. How many think s it should be that? Okay, how many think s it should be B, the cut flowers? Okay, now let me just ask, brother, you said A. Why? Why do you think it should be A? Because live flower is alive. Yeah. If it's a flower, it's dead. Doesn't that make total sense?、Yeah. But that's the wrong answer. <laughs> and I did exactly that thing. I went, and I, through my American mind, I went down to the flower shop, and we were going to go call on somebody sick in the hospital. And I went in there, and I was going to buy a nice, living, potted, African violet or something、It、had a bunch of pretty blossoms that would continue to live and, and they could enjoy it rather than just a bunch of expensive cut flowers that, like this after a few days. And so it made total sense to me. And, and the lady, the cashier,、uh, I said, This is a gift. 
And uh, she said, oh, okay, you want me to wrap it? And I said, yeah. I said, it's, it's for somebody, whatever you think is the best way to wrap it, I'm going to take it to somebody up in the hospital. And she heard that word hospital, and she just stopped. And like, this is for somebody in the hospital? I said, yeah. And she said, no, 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 no. You, you don't do that. And she didn't really explain it to me why right then and there, but she was very adamant. You don't do that. I said, well, what should I take? She said, just get a bouquet of cut flowers. And uh, they'll put it in a little vase in their room, and that'll be a nice gesture. But do not take a potted plant. Now, later, I checked into it because I wanted to understand what's wrong with taking them a nice living potted plant. And here's the deal. It's superstitious, but if you take somebody a potted plant, a potted plant has roots. And it's not about living. It's about the sickness taking root, and they won't get better. It's superstitious. A pot of plants not going to make a bit of difference whether you get well or stay sick. But it, so it's a superstition. I could laugh about it and say that's just stupid. But it's now it doesn't fit the Bible. We shouldn't live by fear, and it's not going to matter whether it was cut flowers or a pot of plant. But hey, the Bible says as much as possible, live peaceably with all men and and do not cause offense. I'm not going to disobey God by choosing to buy some cut flowers in that situation. And so the, the right thing to do is follow the culture in something like that. And those, that's just one of many things that we encountered as we got to Japan. And so it gives you a little taste of like, wow, that's a way different way of thinking. And uh, it's amazing to me that this planet, and it's not just across the ocean. I mean, you can go across the Mason-Dixon line from Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, into central Kentucky a couple hours, and you are in a total different culture. I mean, a total different church culture. And how they do it in Cincinnati, in church, and it's a good, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Baptist church. And we went down into central Kentucky, and guess what? It was a good, gospel-preaching, independent Baptist church, preached out of the same Bible. But wow, how they go about it. You know, and so learning that there are changes like that. Well, take your Bibles. I want to take the time we have left this afternoon, and I'm going to be sharing after a little while some slides to go along with a, a story from Japan from long ago. Uh, World War II era. Uh, few of us here, I'm not going to ask who, because that's dangerous, but it's getting fewer and fewer that people remember World War II. If they're alive today and remember it, they were a small child. Uh, occasionally, you'll meet a veteran from World War II, but they are passing off the scene. They're over 100 years now. And, uh, but there's a story about Japan and World War II, too. But first, I'd like you to take your Bibles to the book uh, Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And I'm going to just remain seated, but I'm going to read the first nine verses of Mark 14. Now, when you study God's Word, it's important to rightly divide the Word of truth. People come up with all kinds of things that they say God teaches them from the Bible that are not biblical uh, because they, they pick and choose what they want and they take something out of its context. And the Word of God does not argue with itself. They'll go over to James and say, well, the Bible says faith without works is dead, and that with your works you get saved. Yeah, it does say faith without works is dead. But it also says over in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. So did God forget what he had James write down in the book of James when he had Paul write down what Paul wrote, or is it all the Word of God? Uh, It's that particular instance, I believe, is the viewpoint. When God looks at you and me, he sees it from heaven, and it's Ephesians 2, totally by the grace of God, 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And I would go on to say, to a twofold coin that has to take place. And this is another message, but repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A lot of Japanese people don't mind being inclusive and adding Jesus to one more of their list of gods. Just include him in and just make it all one big religious family. But if you dare to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life, to the exclusion of all others, that's very exclusive, and they have a hard time with that. And that takes what we call repentance, a change of mind, and that results in a change of your direction. And that has to happen. Uh, and we have a lot of Japanese people we've worked with. I think they want to believe that Jesus is the Savior. They want to believe there's a place called heaven and a God that loves them that wants to take them there. But they don't want to quit living for themselves. They don't want to quit going their own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And I kind of like it that way. I like going my way. But you'll never come to the Savior as long as you're going your way. You've got to come to the foot of the cross. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. After, this is, uh, I said all that about context. This, the context of this passage is just two days before the Passover. Now, if you understand what was the Passover, what happened on this particular Passover? Jesus, our Passover, was sacrificed as the Lamb of God for our sins. So this is two days before he goes to Calvary. And he's in a place called Bethany, a small town near Jerusalem. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. It's estimated that this value of this box of ointment would have been the equivalent of a, a, a person's year's wages, a year's wages. And it was very expensive. And, and so verse 4, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, at the end of verse 3, she took it and she brought it, she broke the box and she poured it on the head of Jesus. Verse 4, and there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. Amen. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for, of for a memorial of her. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity you've given me to open your word to this dear body of believers here. I thank you for their pastor. I thank you for the years that Brother Hudson faithfully ministered here before Brother Simpson came. I thank you for how they have worked and cooperated together transitioning from a senior pastor to a new pastor. That doesn't always work well in a lot of places. Uh, there has to be a graciousness. There has to be a humility. There has to be a teachable spirit. There has to be a, a lot of things. And Father, I thank you for bringing the church through that period. And for now, the leadership, uh, I pray for Pastor Simpson. I pray you give him wisdom from on high. I pray that you'd give him wisdom from your word. We live in a day when 
fast, uh, very quickly, people are departing from the faith. And, and men and churches that once stood for truth are no longer doing so. I pray, Father, that when we come back the next time, if we haven't gone to heaven first, that uh, this church will still be here, still preaching your word. And I pray that they'll be faithful. And, Lord, that you'll help us to be faithful right up until you take us home. We thank you for this time in your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't think to do it, but sometimes at the beginning of this message, I'll make a pastor nervous because I'll get up to speak and I'll say, I just want to tell you folks that I'm going to fulfill prophecy today. And that sounds kind of wacko, right? But I did. Did you notice that I did that? I fulfilled scriptural prophecy. What did Jesus say would happen? Everywhere in the world where this gospel goes, this also will be told of what this woman did for me. I just did it. And it's still being done 2,000 years after the fact. That day, that woman had no idea that what she did would be so significant that it would get recorded in the Word of God. It was just an act of worship and devotion on her part. And God used that, and He put it in His Word. And I want to focus and just kind of camp on that phrase in verse 8. She hath done what she could. Um, She loved the Lord for what he had done for her. The Bible tells us we love the Lord because he first loved us. Her love for the Lord superseded the fear of criticism, being mocked, the loss of finances. It didn't matter. She loved the Lord and she was going to do what she believed was right. And it didn't matter what people thought. So she did what she could. Now, there were a lot of things that she could have thought about, I can't do. But I don't think that was on her mind that day. She couldn't do some things. Now, think about it. Uh, You know, and when we went to Japan, there were a lot of things I couldn't do. I couldn't speak Japanese. But I could drive a bus. (laughs) And that's how this all started. I I drove a bus for a group. Uh, I couldn't speak Japanese. And when we got to Japan... We couldn't speak Japanese, and, but we could hand out tracts. I'm going to get this thing ready here so it looks nicer on the screen. All right. And uh, we could pass out gospel tracts. You know what? Uh, I could do it. My wife could do it. My children could do it. Just a little bit. We didn't know any Japanese. And I got myself in trouble very quickly with the language. And you just got to learn to laugh at yourself and keep on going. Because if you get paralyzed with fear of making a mistake, you're going to quit. Because you're going to make a whole bunch of them. And I would just like, wow, okay, that one, I blew that one. But I had never, ever forgot those two words that I mixed up. I went out the first, we got to Japan in the middle of September. And at New Year's, they didn't do much, and they still don't do much with Christmas other than just some commercial stuff and Christmas cakes and it's shopping. And, but what they really gear up for is the end of the year and New Year's. And that's their holiday and family time. And they have special food and they do this and that. So on New Year's at midnight, the clock strikes 12 and it's a new year, happy new year. You know, in, in New York City, the ball drops, you know, and everybody, Times Square and all that. Well, in Japan... Uh, they'll have various things go on, but many Japanese will go out to a Shinto shrine at midnight, and they will go in there, and it's kind of a party, festive atmosphere, and, uh, but it was very idolatrous, and it was intimidating to me. We had just got to Japan, and this, I'm not used to this, and it was cold, and it was dark, they were, it was like spook house stuff. I mean, there was, there was black crows flying overhead, they had fires burning by the entrance, they had these Big drum. I thought I was in Africa or something, you know. And uh, it was kind of spooky. But the missionary told me, go and stand in front of, the, they have a big gate. It's called a tori. 
and it's like the entrance into the Shinto shrine, and if they believe it at all, it's like this is going into the presence of the gods kind of a thing. And they'll have one in their home, too. They have a little god shelf right there on the... And they'll, they'll put little rice wine offerings and other things and little uh, oranges and whatnot. But uh, he said, just stand outside the gate, and we won't go back into the complex. But they'll go in there, and they'll buy little good luck charm trinkets, and they'll have a big uh, braided rope with a bell, and they'll bring, ring the bell and kind of wake up the gods, and they'll, and they'll bow like that, and they'll pray. And they're praying to something out there. And, uh, and then they, they, and of course, their whole prayer life is nothing about worship and praise and thanks to the, uh, a Savior. It's all about gimme, gimme, gimme. It's all about do this for me, do that for me. Be my good luck charm is basically what it is to them. Uh, help me to stay healthy. Help uh, for young ladies, uh, help me to find a husband, help my pregnancy to go well, help me to find a job, help me to get into college. And they'll pray, or, you know, traffic safety, any number of things. And uh, so they're there, and it's a, it's a social event. So they'll go in, they'll do that, and then they'll go out, and a lot of them will just stay up and party and things through the night. But it's, it's their thing they do. It's tradition. So I was supposed to stand outside the gate, and as people come out of there, give them a track, kind of wish them Happy New Year, and say, please read this. Well, I, didn't, I hadn't been in Japan very long. We, we were just getting started. So it was, a, it was kind of like Brother Day, Raymond here. You know, I gave him this little phrase, and it's, it's pretty basic, but for him it was like, whoa, this is not English. And, uh, and he memorized it. That was pretty good. I was, I was pretty impressed. But I stood there, and, and it was like, you know, Happy New Year, and I worked on that, but then it was like, please read this. Well, the word for please read was oyomi, and I thought I was saying oyomi, but I said oyome. And oyomi is please read, but oyome is kind of like a proposal. <laughs> oyome is a, is a young lady that's going to become a bride. And there, I mean, you, you really wouldn't literally say it that way, but these gals, college-age gals came out, and I said what I thought was please read this, but she thought I, and she asked me, did you say oyome? And I thought it was the same thing. And so I said, hi, and gave it to her, and they looked at each other and laughed and cackling, off they went. And I'm like, I don't know what just happened, but that didn't look good. And so it happens. But I couldn't, I couldn't speak Japanese very well, but I could give them a tract. And even though I bungled up and mangled their language, they had in their hand the Word of God. Yes. See, it wasn't about what I can or can't do. It's about what God, you can do, and the Lord will use it. And little children, our children would go out with us, and we, they'd pass out tracts at a festival. There's a man that's going to go to heaven. His name is Brother Hatanaka. And uh, he's in his 60s, and he was thinking about suicide. And <clears throat> he called me and said that word, jisatsu, which is suicide. And I tried to give him something to give him hope, but I couldn't find him. He wouldn't tell me how to reach him. And a whole year went by, and I had no way to, of knowing how to find this man. And he walked up to our coworker, Brother Dwayne Wilhite, at a festival where he and his kids were passing out tracts, and I was down the way someplace else. And this man walked up to him and said, are you Mr. Smith? And, I said, and he said, no, but I work with the Smiths. And he pulled out a tract that had been put in his, or a Gospel of John or something, and that had been put in the mailbox. You can do that in Japan. It's not illegal. And, uh, and he had been staying with his elderly parents. He looked out the window, because he heard something downstairs, and he saw a little blonde-haired boy walking away from the house. And he knew that something had been put in their entry. 
And he went down there, and here it was, a John Romans or a gospel tract. And that little boy couldn't have carried on a conversation with him any more than you could at that time. But he could do this. He could do that. And God used it. And uh, it's not about what you and I can do. Think about this woman here. I believe it was Mary. Uh, there are several Marys in the Bible. But this Mary, uh, she could not heal <clears throat> the leper. It's a miracle. Jesus was in the home of a leper. You can't do that. Lepers are unclean. They're castaways. <clears throat> Obviously, this was a, a healed leper, a man that had been a leper, but he was no longer a leper. She couldn't heal that leper. Uh, she couldn't make the others believe that Jesus was the Savior that she believed he was. Uh, she could help bury Jesus, and I believe probably she was right there helping with the ladies and Joseph of Arimathea and Lazarus as they buried and wrapped the body of Jesus and anointed it, but she couldn't raise him from the dead. Um, a lot of things she couldn't do, but God, through a human being that yields his will to the Lord, I can do all things through Christ, Amen. which strengthens me. You think about all through the Bible, story after story after story, Gideon and his men, his 300 men, we don't have enough men, God. We've got to raise our ranks. And the Lord said, no, you have too many. Send some home. What? <laughs> that doesn't make sense exactly. Usually the will of God for your life won't make human sense. And you've just got to learn to live by Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Can you quote it with me? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. And uh, Gideon, it didn't make sense to have 300 men go fight the Midianites. But God gave him a great victory. Moses couldn't deliver Israel from Pharaoh. He couldn't feed the people out there in the wilderness. He couldn't do these things. David couldn't kill the lion. David couldn't kill the bear. And David couldn't kill Goliath. I wrestled a bear one time. I don't recommend it. Uh, it was... It was a very controlled situation, thankfully, but they had, there was a, a mall in Rochester, Minnesota, where this guy had this circus bear. It was, Vic, it was a black bear, so compared to a grizzly, it wasn't as big, but it was still big. And uh, it had a muzzle. It was declawed. It's still a very strong animal. It was a real bear. And Victor the wrestling bear. And this, they had all comers, and I was stupid enough to take the challenge of a classmate in high school and he said, you go first. And I tried wrestling a bear. Didn't last very long. I went up there and I thought, well, I know I'm not going to beat this thing. And he was sitting down. He was drinking Coca-Cola from a two-liter bottle. Big old tongue coming out of its mouth. And, and I thought, this is not going to go well. And everybody's gathering around like, I didn't think there'd be stupid enough people to do this, but I guess there is. And so we, they came up there. And so I get in the ring and I'm trying to think of how I can do something to at least be mildly impressive before this thing really gets out of hand. So I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'll walk up there, and it's going to come up, you know, and the thing did. It, it finally it stood up, and then I went, oh, man. And it's coming at me like a tree trunk. And I thought, if I can do a judo move and kick its leg out from underneath it and push it and make it fall one time, at least it'll look like I did something. And so I went up there, and I went, boom, and it was like kicking a tree trunk. It did not move. And then I looked at that thing like that didn't do anything. And then it went, and it just put me right down. And it put my, pinned my shoulders down. And then it started licking me to death. 
Yeah, and I didn't want to be there, but I had no control of the situation. Okay, that's what happened. I, David, I guarantee you, David did not have enough physical power to kill a lion with his bare hands. He did not have physical power to kill the king of beasts, a lion. And he certainly didn't have the power to kill Goliath. But the same, what did David say? God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he'll deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. It wasn't about what David could do. It was what God wanted to do through him. Samson couldn't kill. He wasn't this power lifter, Mr. Universe looking guy. I think he was a, just a spindly wisp of a guy. People said, wherein does his great strength lieth? They couldn't figure out where his power came from because it came from God. The little boy couldn't feed the multitude, but he could give Jesus his lunch. God wants to do a work through you, and as Pastor mentioned this morning in church, there's something God has for you to do here. And you just need to find out what it is and roll up your sleeves and and do it. I want to tell you a story, uh, and you and I will not know this side of heaven, the full story of what impact your life made on somebody this side of heaven. We'll hear the rest of the story later. But I want to just now quickly go, and this won't be much longer, but I want to share with you a story, and I think this will work. Okay, first of all, let me get it here. This has nothing to do with the message, but it's a, it's a picture from the last time we were here. And so I threw it up there real quick. Uh, it was during the conference last time, and Brother and Mrs. Hudson and the Delaney's were here. And uh, we got a picture with them. and had some great fellowship. All right, now, going on to what I really want to talk to you about. This man's name is Chiune Sugihara. And that's the English order. First name Chiune, last name, family name Sugihara. In Japan, you'd say it the opposite way. You'd say Klingensmith Dave. Uh, you'd say your family name first and then your name last. Uh, but this man, he did what he could. Now, who was this man? <clears throat> For years, I didn't know about this man. He was, interestingly, he was born... On January 1st, 1900. So his birth date was 1100 <laughs> back then. And uh, he was born into a prominent family. His father had ambitions. A lot of times <clears throat> dads have dreams for their boys. And dad's dream for him was to become a, a doctor. He wanted his son to be a doctor. <clears throat> he didn't want to be a doctor. Could I ask someone just to get me a glass of water, please? Is there a po- some? Oh, perfect. Thank you. I heard a preacher say one time, I think I got a frog in my throat, and I think he just crossed his legs. <laughs> I didn't think it up, but it's a good line. <laughs> Thank you. All right. <clears throat> so, Mr. Sugihara, he didn't want to be a doctor. So he actually, t- to get into college for medical school, you have to take an entrance exam. He signed his name to the exam and didn't fill out one problem and turned it in. He intentionally flunked. His dad was not happy about that, but he said, I guess you really don't want to be a doctor, do you? And he said, I've been trying to tell you that. And so he uh, was very gifted with languages, and so he learned English, and then he became proficient in Russian. And for a time, <clears throat> Mr. Sugihara, uh, he got married, and uh, his family began to grow. He had a couple of boys, and he, uh, he was assigned to Manchuria, which was a part of China, before the war. Japan <clears throat> was making overtures to go into China, and uh, Japanese soldiers were not being kind to the Chinese people, and uh, he got disgusted with what he saw happening in China, and he resigned his post and went back to Japan. Well, a while later, he was reassigned, and he became the vice consul 
like an ambassador to the Japanese consulate or like an embassy in the little country of Lithuania. And right next to Lithuania is Poland, and right next to Poland is Germany. And in the late 1930s, America entered the war at the end of 1941 with Pearl Harbor. But the war was going long before that. In fact, some of you may have read about the, the man Louis Zamperini. They made a book about him, I think a movie called Unbroken. And uh, he ran in the 1936 Olympics. He didn't win a medal, but he ran for the United States. <clears throat> he stayed in Germany after the war, or I'm sorry, after the Olympics ended to do some tourism stuff. And he said almost immediately after the closing ceremonies of the Olympics, everything in the stadium came down and all of these Quonset huts and barracks and stuff started getting built. Hitler was already ramping up. He was preparing for war. And uh, Sugihara got assigned in 1939 with his family to the small town of Kaunas, uh, Lithuania. And he was the ambassador there. Well, something happened uh, as he was there. And one day... Uh, he heard rumors of the war coming more and more to the east. And things were getting closed off in the west <clears throat> because of the war. Uh, and one day he heard a ruckus outside and there were a whole bunch of Jewish people that had fled Poland. And they were coming into Lithuania and they were coming to him and they were trying to escape Hitler and the Holocaust. And the reason they came to him was they, they had permission. They, they, no one wanted them, sadly, and they couldn't find a place to take them. <clears throat> Their home country of Israel was not allowed. They weren't allowed to go back there. And uh, they found out about a Dutch colony called uh, Kurakau in the Caribbean. And that little Dutch colony did not require a particular visa, you could come in pretty freely and stay there. So they were trying to get there, but they had to get an exit visa. Russia would let them cross Russia on the transcontinental railway only if they had an exit visa to take them out of Russia into another country. So they came to Mr. Sugihara saying, if you will give us a visa that will allow us temporarily to go into Japan, Russia will let us travel and we can get out. And he recognized their plight. There was no place else to go. They had to go east. They couldn't go west without facing annihilation. So he began, he, he saw their plight. He recognized the problem. And so three different times he requested to his officials in Japan, in Tokyo, I have all these people, grandmas, grandpas, parents, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And some of these people have just the shirts on their backs. They don't have proper documentation. <clears throat> Some of them have very little money. And uh, three different times the Japanese government said, absolutely not. We do not want to take refugees. They'll come in and we won't be able to get rid of them. And for various reasons, they said no. And uh, Mr. Sugihara was faced with a dilemma. Do I do what my government commands me to do? He had spent some time with a Bible study. I have never found the testimony of this man to know specifically whether he ever trusted Christ as Savior. But he was burdened for these people. And he talked it over with his wife, and I'm sure he agonized over it because he realized the implications. If I go against orders, not only could I lose my position and lose my job in my own country, I could be putting my family in danger by helping these people. But he made a decision to do it. 
And for the next number of months, he and his wife, he would handwrite visas for these people. And he wrote uh, just 16, 18 hours a day. He would handwrite visas. His wife would feed him sandwiches as he filled out visas because he knew every time I fill one of these out, someone can go and get out. And he was very shrewd about it. And he told people, whoever is the head of a household, if it's grandpa or if it's dad, this visa will be in your name and your entire family can travel on this one visa. And so he multiplied his efforts. But uh, a couple thousand of these were written during the time that he had. The war kept coming closer and closer. And he feverishly was writing visas and people were getting out and going out. And it has been estimated, this is a picture of one of the actual visas. Now, you're not going to be able to read much of it, but this was an actual visa, and the dates are on here, 1941, uh, and his signature, and it says that the Consul General of Japan grants an exit visa to allow these people transit through Japan on their way to Kurokawa. And people were going, and the Japanese government didn't even know this was being done, but the customs and immigration officials, as these people were coming into Japan, they looked at it, and they said, well, it's, it's stamped by the Japanese government, and it's signed by the consul, and they let them pass through. And, and uh, many, many, many were saved from a certain death because of this. These are some, it's hard to see, I know, from that far out, but these are lists of people that he wrote visas for, just hundreds and hundreds and even thousands and there came a time when Mr. Sugihara was told by the Lithuanian government, we can no longer guarantee your safety, and we are shutting down all of the consulates, all of the embassies in this country, because we are being invaded soon, and uh, we cannot guarantee your safety, so you must leave. And so he took his family back to the hotel, and Japanese, I'm sorry, uh, Jewish people followed him to his home, or to the hotel. He signed more. The day of leaving Lithuania, he was at the train station on the platform, signing visas, handing them out from the train car. And finally, as it pulled away, he said, I'm sorry I couldn't do more, but I've done what I could. Now, this is his son at 72 years of age. I believe this picture was taken in 2021, so it was just a couple years ago. Mr. Sugihara went back to Japan. Eventually, it was found out what he was doing. And he was transferred, and he went in various places in Europe. And Russia was also invading areas, and Russian soldiers actually captured and put his family in an internment camp until the end of the war. But eventually his family was allowed to return to Japan. And when he did, he, he lost every position that he'd ever had. Uh, the Japanese people, in the beginning, gave him no recognition for what he had done. The government was certainly not going to promote him. He was demoted. And uh, in his, the rest of his years, he tried to scratch out a living. He sold light bulbs door to door. And Japan was very poor after the war. But many, many years later, after World War II ended, it is estimated that hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, descendants, survived and or are living today because of what that one man did. He did what he could. His 72-year-old son a couple years ago went to Israel. Mr. Sugihara, uh, if you know about Israel's culture, they have, uh, in America, I suppose it would be like the presidential 
uh, Medal of Freedom. Uh, I, the, great, the highest civilian honor that, a, that a, an American civilian could have. In Israel, they have a, an award called Righteous Among the Nations. Now, that's their title. You and I understand that you're not made righteous by good, benevolent works. And as much as he did for these people, that's not the ticket to heaven. But the Jewish people were very, very grateful to him for what he did. And his son went back and, and uh, gave a speech. And his, his father never was able to return to Israel. He was in too poor of health. But later his wife went there and his son, and they honored him. And he said his father never imagined that so many beneficiaries of the documents he issued would manage to survive. Now this man, his son, Nobuki, estimated there were several hundred thousand descendants of those who were able to escape to safety. Now, I don't know if we're going to get this to work. We're going to try. There is a short video testimony of a woman who survived the Holocaust directly as a result of what Mr. Sugihata did. And so we're going to try it and see if this will play with volume. We had it working once, but I don't know. Is it, is it there? Let me see if we can... If we can't get it, I will explain. You can read it there. But this woman, uh, she was, I think she said, three years old when she left uh, her parents. She said, my parents were able to get a visa from Mr. Sugihara. And I'll just read it here as we go. She said, I was a child and really didn't know the impact what Mr. Sugihara had upon my life. She said, he wrote these visas by hand. He was able to write a little over 2,000 visas. He didn't really know what would happen to him as a result of the things that he did. He saw people who were really desperate to leave Lithuania, her parents and herself. This, with this visa, we took the Trans-Siberian Railroad through Russia and down to Vladivostok, and from there to Tsuruga, Japan, and then to Tokyo, and eventually came to the United States in 1941, just as the American war was starting. Her parents left everything behind, including my mother leaving behind her family, which all were killed in the Holocaust. But she and her family survived. A conspiracy of kindness is really what saved my life. And she wrote a letter, shortly after his passing, this lady wrote a letter to his widow. And she reads what she wrote. Dear Mrs. Sugihara and family, I don't know how one can really thank another person for giving them the gift of life, but I will try. I recently learned about your late husband, Chiyune Sugihara, and his heroic part in rescuing Jews in Kovno, Lithuania. I am among those whose life he saved. At the time, I was a three-year-old child traveling on my mother's passport and visa. I'm grateful to you and your family for supporting Chiyune Sugihara's compassion, sensitivity, and exceptional courage at a difficult time in history. My parents and I were incredibly, I would say, blessed. She said, lucky to have been helped by him. I, too... Thank you. I am grateful to have had the opportunity to grow to adulthood, to benefit by good education, to have been able to be married to a special man that for that time was 40 years, which is now 57 and a half years we've been married. 
to have taught many elementary school children for 25 years, and she's crying as she says this, to have raised and educated two wonderful twin sons who are medical doctors. And I have three precious grandchildren now. All of my family join me in sending our thanks and appreciation to you and your family for your husband and father's exceptional, exceptional noble actions. And I signed it with heartfelt gratitude, Edith Finkelstein Hamer. And she said, I would not be alive today if it were not for Mr. Sugihara. And certainly I would not have the children and the grandchildren that I, that I have now. So by saving one life, he really saved many lives. And he did what he could. This was actually, says he received the 2015 Lyndon Baines Johnson Moral Courage Award. And I think there's a museum somewhere here in Houston where maybe this is on record. I've not seen it. Now, beloved, that's a story from a war, and I realize it's not the same as the gospel, but I think you can see the parallel. This man did what he could. He was asked later, because it's not the Japanese way to go against orders. And they asked him, why did you do that? And he said, for me to obey my government would have been to disobey God. And he was willing to do. He couldn't save every person. There's a story of a little boy walking along a, along a beach. And sometimes the way the ocean works, it walk, the tides come in. And this particular day, there were starfish all up and down the beach that had been washed ashore, a particular kind of starfish. And of course, starfish need water. And they'll dry out and die if they're not in the water. And they were all washed up on the sand. And a little boy saw them and realized... They're going to die. And he was out there as hard and as fast as he could, whipping starfish one after another back into the ocean, saving one, saving one, saving one. And an old gentleman walked down there and saw this futile effort of this little boy. He looked down there and he saw just miles ahead of him, starfish on a beach. And he stopped a little guy and he said, son, there are so many starfish out here, you can't count them all. There's no way you can save them all, as if it's not worth it. And that little guy looked down at one starfish, and he went, there's one more. <laughs> and there's one more. People, I don't know what God's going to do with you and with me, but it's not about what you do. It's not about what I can or cannot do. It's about what God wants to do through you. And this man did what he could. You and I cannot do this and cannot do that. You don't have to. You say, I can't go over there and drive on the left side of the road and eat with chopsticks. Well, maybe you don't have to. But you can do this. You can do that. There's something God has for you. And so as we close, I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor Simpson. But just let it be a prayer of your heart. Lord, show me this week, this month, this year, what do you want me to do? And by your grace, I will do what I can. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here with these people today. Lord Jesus, we understand that we cannot make people believe the gospel. We cannot make them realize they need a Savior. We cannot give them eternal life. But Father, we can tell them about a Savior who can. And even if we don't know how to really go about it and put it into words, we can give a gospel track. We can invite somebody to VBS or do a church service or introduce them to pastor. Or there is something that can be done. And Father, I thank you that uh, you are the God of the impossible. And uh, through our weakness, you love to show your strength. And so Father, use us... This man died never seeing all the people that were saved through what he did. Father, I believe we're going to leave this world and never know until the other side.
what all you did down here. But we know that you're at work, and your word will not return void. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.